are listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Tatenda Musinahama. Welcome to the conversation. In today's conversation, we have Professor Manfred Novak, who is the independent expert leading the United Nations Global Study on Children Deprived of Liberty. Welcome to today's conversation. Uh, hi, good morning. It's very nice to be here. We are so happy to have a man of your repute joining us today for the HRDA alumni celebrations. It's such an honor and welcome to the conversation. Uh, thank you very much. I was following already what all the alumni have mm-hmm. done. From after 20 years of the African Master, and some of them are chairpersons of the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, or chairperson of the UN Working Group on Discrimination Against Women and Girls, and have high positions in, in government, in courts, in international organizations, in non-governmental organizations. It's, it's amazing to see all those people, and they are all part of the global campus. But I'm here in my main function. I'm Secretary General of the Global Campus of Human Rights, which is a network of seven regional master programs in all world regions, from Latin America, via Africa, Asia Pacific, the Arab world, to Europe, the Caucasus, and uh, the, the Balkans. And, um, and we are the the biggest network, we are about 100 universities oh, wow. around the globe, okay. the biggest network of postgraduate human rights education. And uh, as I said, uh, we moved a long way from originally a European association, mm-hmm. a non-profit association, to now a global one. And uh, the constituent general assembly is taking place on Human Rights Day 10 December and 11 December here in Pretoria. In the African context, we're still coming to terms with trying to understand the concept of children having rights. Now we're moving from a part where we have to observe children's rights to a place where we're focusing on a study that focuses on children deprived of liberty. So can you explain to us what that really means? Yes. Perhaps I should start that the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child just celebrated its 30th birthday, so it's from 1989. And uh, it's one of the most successful UN human rights treaties because it is ratified by almost all countries in the world, 196 states parties. And it is a very broad way of seeing children not primarily as objects of duties, but as subjects of rights, as rights holders. Yes. That's the paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. And there are many areas, for instance, uh, there was Casa Magel. Uh, she did a first global study on children in armed conflict, which had a major impact on child soldiers, mm-hmm. the way how the Security Council deals with these issues, and it had a positive impact. There are less child soldiers today than yeah, 20 years yeah, ago. Absolutely. Now, in 2006, we had a second global study by Paulo Sergio Pinheiro, a very well-known Brazilian um, human rights professor uh, on violence against children Mm -hmm. and that is all forms of violence in the streets, violence in the family, in schools, Mm -hmm. in institutions, etc. And he also said that uh, of course if children are deprived of liberty then the risk of being subject to physical, mental, sexual violence is biggest. Mm -hmm. And that's why the the General Assembly of the United Nations in 2014 
invited the Secretary General of the United Nations to commission another global study mm -hmm. on children deprived of liberty. Now, with deprived, so with children, we mean, according to the convention, every young person up to the age of 18. Mm -hmm. So not only small children, but also youth adolescents. Secondly, the Convention on the Rights of the Child says that for children, deprivation of liberty should only be a measure of last resort. It means an exception. And if absolutely necessary, then for the shortest appropriate period of time. And uh, that's the very idea of the global study, to look into the magnitude of the problem. We simply don't know how many children are behind bars. Now, what does it mean, deprivation of liberty? Of course, if children, a 16-year-old boy, is committing some kind of crime, of course also this boy might be arrested by the police, brought mm -hmm. to the police station, in police custody, and then if if it's a serious crime, he will be charged and he might spend some time in pretrial detention and finally he might even get a prison sentence. Mm -hmm. So that is what people usually understand of deprivation of liberty is being in prison, being incarcerated. Mm -hmm. But there are many other reasons why children might be deprived of liberty. For instance, mm -hmm. migration-related detention plays a big role in many countries of the world, in Europe, in the United States, in Australia, uh, etc., and partly also in, in, in Africa. But the biggest number of children that are in reality deprived of liberty, they cannot leave at their own free will, is in institutions. That might start with orphanages, but uh, children's homes uh, for children with disabilities, for children who have drug problems, for their rehabilitation, for their protection and care. Sometimes these are naughty kids and they are not yet uh, uh, old, old enough yeah. for the criminal justice system. So what do you do with a 10-year-old with a who commits perhaps even murder or mm. robbery, etc.? So they should be dealt with by the child welfare system, but often they are ending up in institutions where they are deprived of liberty. The same is if you think about child soldiers. Think about Boko Haram, for instance, or Al-Jabaab and many others. And... Uh, and then they are arrested by the military, end up in, in military detention, often in terrible conditions. So children that are accused of terrorism, etc. And the last one is children also who might grow up with their mothers in prison because the mother is sentenced to a prison term and there's nobody else who can take care of the child. Mm -hmm. And then children, uh, and I, when I was special rapporteur on torture, I visited so many prisons around the world and I, I often saw small children to be incarcerated together with mm -hmm. their mothers. And I, I'm not saying everything is illegal. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's in the best interest of the child to stay with the mother rather than to be sent to an orphanage mm -hmm. if you are a one-year-old child. So it might be better if you bond with your mother in prison. But what is if the mother is then um, sentenced to 10 years of imprisonment and you still are separated? So these are very, very difficult questions where the Convention on the Rights of the Child actually does provide an answer, but we always have to balance the different mm -hmm. interests. Hmm. That's a very interesting perspective you bring there because so many times as adults we tend to overlook the importance of making sure that children are raised in loving homes, loving societies and by virtue of trying to create these institutions, I think the thinking behind that is to try and ensure that these children are raised well and that they have the best foundation they can have to a good future. So I think that's quite a very important study that, you, that you're undertaking there. But did you 
you have any personal reasons why you decided to focus on this nature of a study? I mean, um, the general, the Secretary General of the United Nations then established an inter agency task force of the different United Nations agencies. So that mm -hmm. is UNICEF, of course, but it's also the High Commissioner for Human Rights, the High Commissioner for Refugees, mm -hmm. the United Nations Office for Drugs and Crime in Vienna, and uh, uh, the International Organization for Migration, etc. And the Committee on the Rights of the Child, plus the two special representatives of the Secretary General mm -hmm. in charge of implementing the earlier studies. And mm -hmm. the chairperson was Marta Santos Pais, who was at that time the special representative of the Secretary General on violence against children, children because okay. children deprived of liberty, I see this as a form of structural violence. Mm -hmm. So, And they then were charged to select an independent expert. And uh, so at a certain point in 2016, they asked me, uh, and I felt immediately that is something I'm extremely interested in. I served for, ten, for six years between 2004 and 2010 as United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture. Mm -hmm. And I carried out 18 fact-finding missions wow. to countries in all world regions, including in Africa, Nigeria, for mm -hmm. instance, or Equatorial Guinea and Togo. And uh, I saw, and, and of course, if you want to investigate torture, mm -hmm. It's always behind closed doors. So you have oh, to go yes. into police custody, you have to go into the military camps, you have to go into prisons, etc. Mm -hmm. And I saw a lot of misery because the conditions of detention are terrible. So many persons are tortured. But for me personally, the worst is if you see children. Children in Togo, I saw children about eight years old who were already sentenced to a prison term because the minimum age of criminal responsibility at that time was seven years old. Oh, uh, in Equatorial Guinea, I saw so many kids in normal police stations where they were tortured, etc. And uh, in, in Kazakhstan, I saw children in, in, in children's homes where they were beaten up every day and uh, under strict discipline, etc. So, and that is that is heartbreaking. If you mm -hmm. if you see, I mean, it's in general, human beings should not be treated as most people are treated when they are mm -hmm. deprived of liberty. But for children, it's it's much worse mm -hmm. because. Uh, there are always alternatives. Mm -hmm. There are always non-custodial solutions that are better, mm -hmm. better for the child, but also better for the society. Mm -hmm. Because if you lock up kids, that's the best way how they then later become criminals. Because oh, yeah. that's there where they learn. They are mixed with adults. They are still mm -hmm. learning uh, what they should not do. do. Of course. And, uh, so if you, if the child welfare system or the parents, the best is the parents. Mm -hmm. uh, we need much more support for the parents that they take proper care of their children, and then they don't need to be sent to an institution. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the risk is much smaller that they are starting mm -hmm. to commit crimes, etc. All states, all 193 member states of the United Nations unanimously requested this study. So I had, of course, uh, a high level of cooperation by mm -hmm. states. On the other hand, um, the General Assembly said it should not be paid from the regular budget of the United Nations, but from voluntary contributions of oh. states. When I was appointed in October 2016, there was one state that has contributed was Switzerland, uh, some money. And uh, since I'm Austrian, I got some more money from the Austrian government, but it was far 
too little. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot in fundraising. So I went to Geneva, I went to New York, uh, at fundraising dinners uh, where I invited so many states to become friends mm -hmm. of the Global Study and also contributing. Unfortunately, it's only a small number, like primarily European countries, Qatar, that provided some funds. Mm -hmm. But at the end, I was able to raise funds from private foundations, okay. and that was really decisive. But we also got friends of the global study, that means countries without giving money, but supporting the study by hosting regional events, for instance. Mm -hmm. And South Africa is one of them from the very beginning, both South Africa, but also Ethiopia, where we had regional thematic consultations and others are Thailand, for instance, or Uruguay in, in, in Latin America. Mm -hmm. So we had, at the end, a lot of support. We sent out a questionnaire to all member states of the United Nations. Of course, I would have liked if all states would have responded, South Africa did, yeah. but uh, certain states did not. But we got the responses, not only from governments, from national human rights institutions, from NGOs, etc., from UN agencies, uh, in relation to more than 100 states. So this is the basis of our data. But then, of course, we did a lot of research ourselves. Mm -hmm. And the Global Campus of Human Rights was involved. We even asked the students. We said, oh, wow. uh, I mean, couldn't you write your master thesis in the African or in the Latin American master mm -hmm. on a particular country or particular institutions that are depriving children of liberty mm -hmm. and do empirical research? And some of them were great. So we got a lot of data also from mm -hmm. student research, but also from professors and other researchers at the universities. And again, the University of Pretoria was a, a great help, uh, and Skelton in particular was at that time the director of the Child Rights Center at the University of Pretoria was, she is the chairperson of my advisory board, which consists of 22 high-level experts in the field of children's rights. Mm -hmm. And uh, she did uh, an amazing work, uh, not only here, that this difficult part on institutions was primarily researched by the University of Pretoria, but she also assisted us. She came to Venice, stayed oh. with us in the, in the headquarters of the Global mm -hmm. Campus and did review and gave feedback to many of the other chapters that we did. But other universities, Vienna University did a lot and, and uh, many others contributed to the, the success of the global studies. So I'm, I'm very grateful to all those who contributed. Mm -hmm. It was really a joint exercise and mm -hmm. so I am kind of the lead author, but I would never have been able to do that without the support of, of course, hundreds of, of individuals who really did, did research work and uh, collecting all the data from also other official sources to give you just one example the United States of America did not respond to the questionnaire mm. but many of the data are public on governmental websites so yeah. okay. we know quite well that uh, the, the number of children who are in the administration of justice, in detention, police custody, in, in police jails, in, in prisons, in the United States is the highest in the world uh, uh, because of tough on crime policies and, uh, and, and this kind of attitude. Uh, and um, so we got quite a lot of data on the United States and other countries, even though they didn't respond to the question. What was the general nature of your findings I mean, the first and major question is, how many kids are wearing bars? Uh, so far, this data didn't exist. UNICEF was sometimes speaking about one million children, 
but uh, it was primarily in the administration of justice. So, uh, from all the data we collected, and then of course we also had to do some statistical assessments, extrapolations, uh, we, and these are conservative data, mm -hmm. we arrived at the conclusion that currently there are more than 7 million children mm -hmm. uh, deprived of liberty worldwide. Um, and as I said, it's a conservative estimate, probably mm -hmm. it's more. Um, out of this 7.2 million, uh, about 5.4, so the big majority, are in these institutions. And, uh, and that is also the most controversial part because they are not really locked up in cells, but still they are not free to leave these institutions at will. And in some institutions they are locked up in cells for disciplinary measures, often they are beaten, so the, the level of violence in children's institutions is mm -hmm. very high. This might be state institutions, also private institutions. Mm -hmm. Um, the second is the administration of justice, so about we estimate about one million children mm -hmm. uh, per year are in police custody and, and uh, about a little bit more than 400,000 in jails and prisons. Uh, this seems to be a progress uh, because uh, about 10 years ago there, there was a reliable estimate of about one million children. Uh, so there, there were certain measures taken to divert children. So do, first of all, do establish child justice systems. You need special courts for children, special police officers trained how to deal if you arrest a child. You, you, you have to be well trained to do that and then to divert the child rather than immediately put the child into police custody mm -hmm. or quicker detention to try to find a way that you can divert it uh, to the um, child welfare system or perhaps uh, giving a warning and then send it back to the parents and, and uh, perhaps having some kind of surveillance rather than depriving the child of liberty. Mm -hmm. um, so there is some progress. Um, then uh, we have about 330,000 in migration related detention. That's really the, the absolute uh, data that we can prove. Again, the real number will be much higher. Um, and there, the research based on also the, the, the community rights of the child and other UN treaty monitoring bodies, UNICEF and the High Commissioner for Refugees have said that in for purely migrated related reasons, migration related reasons, you should never deprive a child of liberty. Mm -hmm. So whether it's an unaccompanied child or with its parents migrating, you should find another way. So in a, in a community home where they can be housed rather than depriving them of liberty. So what we are saying is states should stop every form of migration-related detention uh, for children. And uh, again, we have high numbers in the United States, for instance. We have, uh, after Mr. Trump uh, actually mm -hmm. uh, said in order to deter migration coming from Central America via Mexico to the United States, to separate children from their parents. And some of them were small little children, half a year babies, yeah. were taken away from their parents simply to deter migration. That's inhuman mm -hmm. and we have still about 3,000 of those kids where the kids don't know where the parents are and the parents mm -hmm. don't know where the kids are and they're searching for each other perhaps the parents were sent back to their countries of origin but the kids are still somewhere in a in the in camp uh, detained uh, in the United States it's 
human tragedies that you see there. So that's also a whole area. In the area of terrorism-related deprivation uh, of liberty and, and child soldiers, of course, in the in the moment, the biggest problem uh, relates to Syria and Iraq and mm -hmm. ISIS, the mm -hmm. Islamic State, after it has been defeated, um, had uh, so many children, uh, either children who were recruited as fighters, foreign fighters from Europe, from Central Asia and other parts of the world. They were more or less voluntarily, because, but very often was via the internet, mm -hmm. joining the Islamic State. Others were whole families going there with small children and then uh, the parents were killed and uh, the children are there. Uh, children were even born in the so-called mm -hmm. Caliphate. Um, so we have about 29,000 children that are currently detained either by the Kurdish authorities in the north of Syria or by the Iraqi government in Baghdad under terrible conditions and uh, they don't really know what to do with those kids and many of the countries of origin don't want to have them back. They said, we don't want to have those terrorists back in Europe or in, in Central Asia. And uh, and that is, is terrible. Mm -hmm. So that uh, so we remind governments, you are responsible for your own citizens. And you should take them back, not in order to put them again into jail, mm -hmm. but in order to provide them with a program of rehabilitation so that they can peacefully reintegrate into society. In armed conflict and terrorism, children should not be seen primarily as perpetrators but as victims. Uh, it's they're, they're, after all, they are still children, <laughs> and uh, so there are many of those recommendations. And uh, and partly the very fact that states were requested to respond to our questionnaire already started a process of not only thinking but also changing practice. To give you one good example in Australia, um, where many children were in migration-related detention, not only in Australia, but in Nauru, for instance, or in Papua New Guinea, Christmas Island. Um, and uh, while the global study was, uh, was developed, uh, there was um, a team of, of doctors sent by the National Human Rights Commission to Nauru in order to assess the, the physical and mental health of those kids and some of them said they have never seen so traumatized children than in now and the government responded and uh, I was recently in, in Sydney and uh, we discussed this with government and the Australian Human Rights Commission and uh, so uh, according to their information there are no more kids in this type of migration related detention so I was very happy to hear that and, uh, and we see also for instance in Central Asia and in uh, in, in Eastern Europe, so in the former communist states, where you had a high number of kids in, in institutions. And Bulgaria, for instance, uh, I talked to the, the Minister of, uh, of ch Children's Welfare and Social uh, Affairs, mm -hmm. and, um, and there we got reliable data that the number of kids in those institutions has been reduced by more than 90% in the last 10 years. So much is already being done, and I'm sure much more will be done. That's good. From your study, did you get a grassroots approach? What was the general consensus amongst these children? How would they like to be treated? Yes, I'm very grateful for this question and I wanted to raise it already before. <laughs> um, when I said 
many different stakeholders contributed at states, United Nations mm -hmm. agency, its non-governmental organization, its uh, academia, mm -hmm. and most importantly, children themselves. Okay. Now, what we did is, uh, and then we got a special grant from, from UNICEF and with the help of NGOs, we interviewed 274 children in 22 different countries mm -hmm. about their experiences, again, in the different forms of uh, jails and, um, and institutions, and of course, much what he said was uh, was very strong. It reminded me so much of my own experience when I visited so many prisons around the world and interviewed children there. They are simply. Thank you so much, Professor. You, I'm I'm happy that you you mentioned that this study on on children deprived of, of liberty is not a name and shaming exercise. I mean, after all, children are the future of, of tomorrow. So it's important that we, as governments, as different stakeholders, we collectively make an effort to do best, to create best practices and ensuring that these children's rights are protected in every way that we can. So uh, just in short, uh, what are your concluding remarks? <laughs> No, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm very happy that we are able to launch here uh, for the Southern African region the, mm -hmm. the global study. I'm uh, looking forward to all the discussions that we have and I hope that states are then developing national action plans mm -hmm. with clear targets, benchmarks, indicators to see what can be done so that we can measure in the future also the progress. We need also some more follow-up by the United Nations, um, and not only by states, but also by the UN agencies. Mm -hmm. Ideally, we should have another special representative, the Secretary General, which is a, a small office that these people have in New York, but uh, they can follow up. And we see, for instance, the violence study, there's so much has been achieved that people also realize violence also occurs in the family mm -hmm. and parents are no longer allowed simply to beat up their children. Some 20 years ago it was in most societies normal. It was seen as a as a way of uh, educating children uh, to punish them with physical punishment and now uh, we realize no it's not a good way of doing that mm -hmm. and uh, you might even commit a crime if mm -hmm. you do that. Uh, like uh, husbands should not beat up their wives, right. parents should not beat up their children. There are other ways how you can educate them. So this kind of, uh, it's, uh, it's not from one day to the other that we will have no more children in detention, but that we gradually work towards that aim. Mm -hmm. And uh, and as I'm very really grateful to the University of Pretoria, but also to the government of South Africa, uh, which in was not only supporting the study from the beginning, but also in many areas is a model. Mm -hmm. uh, you have some of the most beautiful judgments of the South African Constitutional Court dealing exactly with these issues that we deal in the, in the global study and we are also um, telling others in the global study that is what you should actually follow in order to create a world where we don't leave children behind bars. Thank you so much, Professor. I, I enjoyed having this conversation with you. has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Tatenda Musina Hamai. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues.